Welcome to the Vegan Family Kitchen podcast. I have a special guest today, my friend, Charlene Black. Hi, Charlene. Hello. It is an honor to have you on the podcast because we've known each other for a few years now. I'd say maybe four years, but we've never had this in-depth conversation, and I thought it would be uh, interesting for everyone to listen to it as well. I will briefly introduce you, but we're going to go back to talking about your professional journey in a moment. You are a um, family doctor by training, though you no longer practice. You obtained your medical degree from the University of Manitoba, and um, you continued into a a little later doctorate from Johns Hopkins University in health policy. That was a little bit later in the 1980s. You are now a university professor here at the University of British Columbia in the School of Population and Public Health. You have forever been interested in prevention. And as a physician, one of your key goals was always to help your patients stay away from the doctor. And <laughs> that is definitely where we get along um, because I think it is key to staying healthy in so many ways. Um, nothing against doctor. I live, I live with uh, one. Nor me, nor me. <laughs> when we There's need a, them, hopefully when we need them, they're there. Exactly. But avoiding needing them is, is the start um, yeah. in so many ways. You have also been um, vegetarian since the 1980s. And in recent years, you made a turn toward a whole foods plant-based diet. This is going to be a super interesting conversation. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. I'd like to start by asking you about your plant-based journey. Let's start there. How, how did it happen to you that you came to this stage in your approach to nutrition, cooking, and eating? So I'm going to start a little more broadly with that focus on prevention. You know, I, as a, a teenager, my mom had bad arthritis and she started doing yoga and her arthritis got better. So I, uh, became a yoga teacher at the tender age of 16 years and wow. was really interested in seeing people get healthier and better with my yoga practice. I went into medicine many years ago when that was a very crazy idea with the idea that I might combine yoga and medicine, but being an early cohort of female doctors, that didn't work so well. <laughs> so I had to be really good at medicine. So I I uh, initially had a, a, um, a role training other physicians. Um, I've always been interested in teaching. So early on, I read, a, I read Francis Moore LaPay's book, Diet for a Small Planet, and that really influenced me and shifted me towards a vegetarian, what I thought was a healthier vegetarian diet and one that was easier on the planet. So, but it wasn't until about 2018 when I finally watched Forks Over Knives that it hit me that a whole food plant-based diet is really so much better for our health. And so I'd say since that time, I've become really, really interested. I've incorporated it into my life and explored other related kinds of issues. Um, you know, with my academic background, I have the opportunity to dig into the literature and to even uh, do some things to deepen my understanding and practice. So I can give you a couple of examples of Go things I've it. done yeah. this year, what I call my anthropological personal research in my personal journey. I love it. Earlier um, in 2000, 
2022, I visited Alan Goldhammer's uh, shop, uh, True North Health Center, where they do water fasting to prevent and reverse disease. And I myself did a seven-day water fast and a seven-day refeed. Wonderful experience. Little challenging that water fast, seven-day water fast was challenging, and it's under medical supervision. So this was really me learning about how do um, how do some of these practitioners really oversee um, not only prevention but reversal of disease. Um, another thing I did was uh, I just recently did a retreat with um, with um, Rip Esselstein with Essel, the Esselsteins and um, took a friend with me and uh, really uh, got inspired again about, you know, deepening my my commitment to my whole food plant based diet. And if I can put it that way, um, you don't come at this from a place of poor health um, and you're you're a very healthy person. Is correct. that correct? Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's something that is, has been interesting for me because I think a lot of the focus on health has been focus on disease reversal, obviously. And, and mm. it is a massive problem in North America and increasingly the world we're dealing with chronic disease, diabetes, and health disease of all heart disease of all kinds. Right. Um, but a little bit like you, I came perhaps because I started younger, I, I came to plant-based, mostly whole foods. When I was in my mid thirties, my husband and I were quite athletic. We mm. didn't have any health problem. We didn't have extra weight we were carrying around really. So sometimes when I'm asked a question, well, did you experience any health benefits, you know, from going plant-based? I'm like, well, no, <laughs> but it's staying good, which I, I figure is is a benefit. How, how do you see that for yourself? Well, you know, it's really interesting because understanding the range of health conditions and the early markers of poor health, because we, we have a deeper understanding, I think, from a, a medical and a biological perspective about early markers of these conditions. They take years to develop. So I, you know, have had more weight on in the past. <laughs> and I'd say since I started my plant-based, my my whole food plant-based journey, I've lost about 20 pounds. So that's a health benefit for sure. Um, you know, um, I don't know that I know what my markers were, but, you know, I think that there are subtle things that we may not understand, but that the health benefits and the health transitions are there for many people. So I would say I have felt uh, a benefit. I've included some more exercise with my transition, and uh, I'm really seeing the benefits from both of those commitments. That's really fantastic. I think you're a very vital person. And when I talk in depth with people often I hear because I have this, I mentioned to you this other podcast about being in your forties mm -hmm. and I often hear, Oh, you know, in your forties, your body kind of starts to fail you. Right. And <laughs> I just wait till you're 60. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But at the same time, I love hearing those stories that are a little bit of the opposite. Actually, I'm feeling really good and I'm exercising more and it's not, it's not a 
destiny. I'm not saying that people all will be getting personal best marathon times in their 80s. That's not what I'm saying. But it is, you know, decay is not a dark fate that hangs over us necessarily and that we have no control over whatsoever. Right. I mean, in in the scientific literature, there is a discussion about, you know, are we extending our lives and are we extending our lives in good health? And how do we maximize the in good health part uh, with higher quality of life for the longest period of time? And, and so that healthy aging is another theme that I, I'm really interested in. Yes, uh, because I sadly, my father passed away from Alzheimer's disease a couple of years ago, and mm, I've seen a lot of mm. um, other people aging not so gracefully. And yes, you may live until 85, but it's or yeah. 95, but it's not always in the most pleasant of circumstances. Right. How do you want to spend those years? It's exactly. Really- and how much control do you want to have over your life? Yeah. Um, well, I think there is um, research that tells us that there is, we have powerful choices to make in our lives. Um, so we'll, we'll get into from a professional perspective. I think, you know, it's not always up to us as individuals. I think there, are, there are things that society policy changes that can be made Um and obviously, with a background in public health, I'm interested in how do we how do we make those choices easier for people and support people. You know, one one physician I heard give a talk said that we almost need a Formula One team around every individual to support them. Well, can we build healthier environments? Right? Can we make it easy to make good choices and to um, yes. help us stay healthy? Yes, totally. Let's go into that. Because as you say, um, I was going to jump in and say, well, if we're able to make those choices, and those of us that can do those choices, of course, should jump right in. But what about everybody else, right? And so let's, let's talk about where your, your plant based journey intersects with your professional trajectory in the last few years. Right, because I'd say that, um, until recently, they've been separate streams. Okay. At this at this stage in life, as I approach retirement, um, I'm really wanting to jump in to this area and go back to my my initial passion of prevention. And so, um, we know um, in public health that you know maybe fifteen percent of our health is related to the medical care received, and the rest is related to our social determinants of health, one of which, one of the major ones, I think is food. And, you know, I think Michael Pollan's statement, eat food, real food, not too much, is so relevant here. And there's so much more research now um, talking about the role of nutrition. Um, There's an eat EAT Lancet report that talks about food and nutrition as the most powerful influences on both human and planetary health. So we really have an opportunity to make choices that not only benefit us, but benefit others, other people. Um, But the real, there are real challenges in prevention. And I think you alluded to them. How do we make things work for everybody? Because typically there are challenges when we 
focus just on health promotion, on educate, educating people. It's people who are already healthy who respond. How do we in public health really influence those who are most disadvantaged, who, who most have, who have the most significant challenges with food and nutrition? Um, and I think that's where community-based programs, focused, targeted interventions, um, even educating medical people and health professionals um, can make a difference. Um, oh, yes. Maybe we can get more of this into regular advice, support um, for people. So there are so many different ways we can influence um, the choices that individuals make um, at so many different levels, be it clinical, be it programmatic, community-based programs, be it podcasts like yours, be it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so there, there are just so many different avenues to have an influence here. And uh, so one of the things I'm I'm just getting ready to do that uh, is to, uh, I, I'll be teaching a course on chronic disease this starting next week for graduate students in the school. Um, and so I really do hope to influence some next public health practitioners and researchers about this, these messages. And um, I also um, am, will be teaching a course on, the, on policy responses to the social determinants of health. How do we really influence things like housing, nutrition policy, food and nutrition policy, um, income inequality, things that really um, create huge differentials in how healthy we are across uh, the Canadian population. I'm going to ask you a little later how you make um, your diet choices work for you because you're yeah, approaching retirement, but still a pretty busy person. And often we hear people say, oh, I'm too busy to eat well, stuff like that. So we'll go back to that in a moment. But mm -hmm. since we're on the topic of policy, I'd like you to give me a little bit of hope. Because frankly, when I look all around me, I'm not often seeing a whole lot of hopeful signs. Uh, in particular, you know, you mentioned physicians integrating maybe lifestyle, um, you know, advice kind of thing into their their practice more. And I was thinking, just have them stop saying bad things like, you know, gastro gastroenterologists that may tell their patients, oh, it has nothing to do with diet, um, mm. which for the love of God, <laughs> you know, please. So give me hope. Tell me about initiatives that are happening that are going in the right direction, in your opinion at the moment. Well, my guess is that the most, the people who are most likely to take up these messages are our young students. Unfortunately, I think it's really challenging to uh, bring this influence to the current leaders in developing medical curricula, that kind of thing. In spite of that, I see different initiatives. There are um, initiatives in culinary medicine, where, for instance, and this is one thing that I'm hoping to bring to UBC, um, to offer a course to interest students in health professional training programs, to bring them in to a teaching kitchen and help them learn how to cook differently, how to cook healthy plant-based food, 
and to incorporate the um, the medical and um, learning there. So I, I, there are actually curricula that exist on the web that can be adopted and adapted. So maybe with a little bit of help, I can get one of those launched. Um, I really think that working with medical students and having them advocate for change is really going to be the best way to move this forward. Um, I think if there are calls from students, um, our younger generation, I think, is much more in tune with these messages and willing to make these kinds of changes in their lives. So my hope comes from focusing on the up-and-coming generation and uh, seeing if we can. Now, I will say that there are initiatives, medical practices here in BC even, that are taking this up, and, and there are several that um, I really, in my earlier life, I really focused on health services research, which looks at the relationship between health and healthcare delivery, patterns of healthcare delivery. And I really think that um, to really make this work, we need different payment mechanisms for doctors, that kind of thing. So, you know, policy, both in terms of, me of medical care, disease management care, I call it, um, and um, at national and provincial levels, I think is is really is really critical here. You know, in the um, food and nutrition uh, lecture I gave in the uh, in the policy course, um, it became really clear that you know the Health Canada has a real mandate to help us adopt the Canada Food Guide, which is very aligned with what you and I are interested in. However, developing a policy, a food policy is under the Department of Agriculture. And so there are going to be conflicts yes. there because industry is highly represented. So how do, and I think this is the, the challenge of many public health initiatives, tobacco, uh, so many others, is, uh, you know, finding a way to get the messages out to counter the confusion that's deliberately sowed by industry to make our messaging that much more challenging. Indeed. Um, I'd like to talk a little bit about another topic we've talked about before, uh, which is, the: are there initiatives that you know of or that maybe are going to come to fruition in the not too distant future that would be more helpful for those who are experiencing housing insecurity, financial insecurity, living in substandard condition. I mean, when you think of the people that would benefit the most from, you know, a, a bolus of blueberries, you know, of, of mm. fresh fruit and a lot of uh, more vegetables and um, for their health, for their energy, for all those reasons, from whole grains, from legumes, right. they are often, unfortunately, those that have the least means of even cooking um, for themselves or spending a moment thinking about like, even if you want to change your diet, when you live with several forms of insecurity and discrimination and whatnot, like even spending a moment to think about changing, making major changes to your diet, it's just overwhelming. The conditions are not there. Like, are, is there anything coming up that we may <laughs> be cheering for and supporting? 
Um, I I think that there is um, there are initiatives underway to introduce healthy school lunch programs, um, which I would hope that everyone listening to your podcast would be very much in favor of. Um, you know, there's a challenge with these that they're often um, industry influenced, but hopefully we can influence we can ensure that any programs that are advanced are really based on the Canada Food Guide. Um, so that's that's one initiative. And, and I uh, got to say, in Canada, there's not school lunch quite at the same scale as there is in the United States, at least in British Columbia. Yeah, uh, there's very little. Um, right. Well, in in fact, you know, Canada is one of the few country, OECD countries that does not have school lunch programs. So there's a real um, disparity there that um, we we could address that would have a huge impact on children who come from lower income families. And maybe um, we could leapfrog the corn dogs and hopefully hot dog part let's start the right way well you know because our Canada food guide was quite innovative in that they really excluded industry partners from being at the table up until the most recent one industry partners had played a huge role so uh, the Canada food guide is seen as very very advanced I know that Nationally, Health Canada is working on nutrition labeling. I'm a little worried that it's it's just focused on labeling bad things, which um, I don't know how well it will help people focus on healthy food. We know that healthy food is mostly unprocessed around the edges of the supermarket, but not in the meat section, meat or dairy section. Um, and so how we um, how we move beyond labels on things that are processed, I think is is a challenge. Um, so that's one. The other, there's been recent change in funding to primary care um, primary care in BC. And I'm curious to see if that will support, more um, integration of uh, different types of uh, of practitioners, especially dietitians, uh, etc. But then I have a question for you about how many dietitians really understand plant based. Well, I mean, unfortunately, uh, schools where dietetics, you know, registered dietitians are trained, have been also heavily let's say partnered uh with the dairy industry in Canada absolutely and this remains I think the number one hurdle to to break I still even the the Canadian Association of of Dietitians has a partnership still with the the Dairy Association which is unbelievable you know like how how is that even possible that they would be sponsored by one of the worst industries out there. Well, and that's what I think is um, something that needs to happen is to have the public made more aware of these industry influences because they're pervasive, they're everywhere. But, um, and so much of the confusion around dietary advice, I mean, we've known since the 
70s that eating more fruits, vegetables is better for us. But that information has been suppressed or actively suppressed. Um, I'm just finally reading uh, Colin Campbell's The China Study and, you know, to hear, to read about some of the active suppression of um, that early research is is scary. It's so pervasive. It is. It is. And the continued obfuscation, I think we can use that word, that is purposefully thrown in to the research, just as you mentioned earlier, to see doubt. Exactly. Right. And at the end of the day, something that bugs me. So I, I've mentioned I'm married to a physician, love physicians and medicine is important. Um, why do I have to give this disclaimer? <laughs> but um, something that kind of bugs me, and I love the things like the culinary medicine initiatives, right? And But often I think like our grandmothers, I'm pretty sure knew that you had to, you know, eat your vegetables. Like those are not, we're not talking about rocket science here, right? And sometimes it just angers me that we have to use precious healthcare dollars to get physicians to learn that you have to eat your vegetables and to right. tell that to other people. Like, how come can't we rely on historic common sense? But I guess there are people out there who think that maybe vegetables are less important. I understand the whole um, historic reliance on meat and in particular dairy as a part of the industrialization and the urbanization of society and how really there was no global food chain to distribute produce a hundred years ago. And yes, I'm quite sure that having access to dairy near the cities did help with the survival and preventing stunting and all those things, eggs, you know, sure. Okay. But we're, we're, a hundred years ahead now. And can't we just go back to some basic common sense and just eat your broccoli? <laughs> you know? And why do I have to pay a physician to tell me that? Um, yeah. Ro Rochester Medicine has a great uh, new poster. It's ask your doctor if a healthy diet will help you. <laughs> just That's I'm, such I'm, a good one. Uh, yeah. I'll share it with you. Yes, please do. And we'll, we'll share it broadly on social media because sure. it's, I mean, as Dr. Gregor likes to say sometimes, you know, big broccoli um, is not sponsoring a whole lot of people. In Canada, we do have um, the, I guess, Produce Manufacturers Association or something like that, that um, are somewhat active, but they probably have a marketing budget that's definitely peanuts compared to yeah. the the maple leaf foods of this world. Um, exactly. Yeah. So a lot of work ahead of us. Let's shift gears a little bit. I'd like to know how you make whole foods, plant-based eating work for yourself. What are the boundaries you set? What do you consider to be really good food in your life? And how do you manage to make it happen onto your plate? Right. Well, um, so, I mean, I've learned a lot from you and oh, I love you. your, I love your batch cooking suggestions. I look at your biweekly food plans. I can't say I follow them, but I consider them as useful input. Um, so batch cooking for sure. Batch cooking in a freezer. Fantastic. Oh, yeah. Right. Those two things just make all the difference because I would say when I first started, I was really interested in learning to do 
new recipes and, you know, learning to make things that were really satisfying. And, um, and I'm always experimenting. I, I mean, I'm lucky in that I love to cook and I like to devote, I have enough time on weekends to devote time to cooking. Uh, so I even batch cook oatmeal. Um, I, I do, um, I, I often make, uh, uh, Anne Esselstyn's, uh, uh, savory oatmeal, which has kale and sun-dried tomatoes and Ooh. turmeric, and uh, it's fantastic way. Um, so batch cooking is one thing that makes a huge difference. I would say since I'm back from the Esselstein retreat, I'm relying much more on simpler approaches. Throwing together a bootable, I still, you know, that still requires me to batch cook some rice or a grain. Um, chop up as many vegetables um, and have them ready to go. Um, so, you know, I try and um, make sure that things that I buy get used by making them easy to, uh, to cook. So I probably spend much less time than you do uh, cooking each evening. Uh, I th often throw together a Buddha bowl. I, Oh, on the weekends, batch cook a sauce or two and um, throw it in the microwave. So, you know, I try and get a variety of fruits and vegetables every day. And um, yeah, I use a lot of microwaving with all the batch cooking that I do and Absolutely. advanced preparation. Yeah. That is key. Having, I call them the major building blocks right? yeah. of dinner ready-made. And um, mm -hmm. I'm less of a, a bowl person I prefer to have things warmed up and <laughs> feeling like they're cooked but it's the same idea I think most yeah, of the that, dinners but, I do are thrown together from what's in but the fridge I do do bowls warm yeah so oh, I, nice. throw in, I throw in some grains some beans that I have on hand I um uh, two or three different vegetables um some nuts and seeds and warm it up. So it's a warm, I, it's, I'm, I'm not good on salads in the winter, but um, me neither. So try and try and introduce as much variety of vegetables and fruits as possible during the week is another, um, another uh, approach I take. So it's warm, it's satiating, uh, satisfying. Um, and so I found a way to, with even less work in the evenings, uh, find a way to do this. I love it. Um, tell me a little bit about um, your food rules. Do you have any? Are there boundaries to your diet other than being plants? But I try and I, I like the term plant strong uh, that Rip Esselstyn uses. Um, I really do like the whole food plant-based low salt, oil, and sugar approach. So I aspire to that. I will say that sometimes I deviate if I'm out for dinner. Um, if I, uh, I I do have a hankering for chocolate every once in a while, um, trying to manage that is challenging. And um, occasional ice cream. So I do deviate. And so I'm not perfect, but, you know, it's really I'm plant strong. I most of my food is strong food and um, it helps me to think that way. I love that. And uh, I have to say, uh, I mean, 
cacao is a plant. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and, I know, but you know, um, I mean, it's possible to get chocolate that is largely cacao or cocoa at that stage, no. um, rather dark right? chocolate. So, dark chocolate, yes, yeah, exactly. Absolutely. That's very good options. That's I definitely know, on it, my on my list of. It, it can be very addictive, though. It can it be is. very addictive. Yeah, you know, I yeah. have a history with. Um, caffeine. Some may know that I I quit drinking coffee. I, I actually had a blog about coffee in Montreal back in 1995. Uh-huh. So I was a true coffee lover, and I uh-huh. completely quit coffee um, about 12 years ago now because I was suspecting it might have something to do with miscarriages that I was experiencing. It may or may not have been the case, but I never had a miscarriage after. Who knows? Um, but the thing was, when I I was not drinking coffee every single day, I would inevitably at eight o'clock in the morning, if I didn't have a coffee yet, I would have a headache and it would last all day. Mm. Even if I had coffee later, like it was, it was done for the, the headache was in, and that was that. And I'm finding that chocolate, if I have it on a very regular basis, it will do the same thing to me. So it is, it is powerfully addictive. Um, oh yeah. Oh yeah. 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 I gave up coffee, coffee, caffeine in coffee as well several years ago and went through withdrawal it was painful I've decided I'll never do that again oh yes it was the worst month of my life by (laughs) you know hands down it was just terrible but once it was over you feel so much better it was amazing and I'm so sad because coffee smells good and yes of course it it does have some health benefits but I like to tell my my husband is still the coffee drinker but I like to Mm. tell him you know when you look at those studies about those people drinking coffee, well, maybe it's the only fruit that they have or bean that they have in their whole diet, you know, so and and chocolate is the same, you know, because there's so few people that eat a substantial amount of fruits and vegetables. So I think I'm making up for what I'm missing from the coffee by eating. But it it must be hard to deal with that beautiful scent every morning <laughs> not anymore you know I like the smell but I I don't like the taste actually the other day we went to the coffee shop and um my daughter ordered a um chai latte you know the, the tea with the oat milk and she tasted it and she was like oh that's that's coffee it's not the tea I ordered and I was like really and I tasted it and indeed it was a a coffee latte they they messed you know the chai word in there and so I drank the thing and I, I drank like a quarter of it and I didn't like it. Coffee drinking is an acquired taste. Like you remember when you were 10 years old, you probably didn't like right. coffee. Right. And then, you know, it's like the grown up thing to do. Right? Right. <laughs> My brother right. would always tell me the kids drink milk and the adults drink coffee. Right? Right. Um, but once you let it go, it's like, actually, it's not that great. Well, and I think there's an analogy with our the change in our taste buds when we go plant-based that, you know, for years we've been overstimulated with these powerful addictive substances that the food industry puts in our, in our processed foods. And we're used to this high, high level of stimulation. So when you first go plant-based, it just seems so bland, but after a while you start tasting these rich depth of flavor in just fruits and vegetables that really makes a difference. Absolutely. And I mean, we don't even need to blame the food industry, although there's a lot of blame to go around there. But things like Parmesan cheese, like Mm. the traditional Parmesan cheese, and 
um, my personal thing was blue cheese. I loved blue oh, cheese yeah. on, on a rare steak, right? When I was <laughs> an, an omnivore and believe it or not, I went away from that. And, but those were not, you know, industry driven foods uh, originally at the very least, but they were bombs of flavor of bombs, flavor yeah. bombs with a lot of fat and a lot of salt. And it just talks to our primal brain and tells you, you know, you need this. Yeah, yeah exactly. Survival instincts are activated. But I have good news for everybody listening to this. There is more likely than not a grocery store that you can access a lot of foods that are really excellent for you and you do not need the Parmesan cheese, which by the way, for vegetarians listening is not even vegetarian. Parmesan has rennet in it, which makes it non-vegetarian. It always shocks me when in the restaurant, there's the vegetarian option has Parmesan. Like, no, 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 not vegetarian. Okay. (laughs) Let me ask you um, to conclude, Charlene, there's people listening that maybe have had the same habits for the past 60 years in terms of their diet. And they're maybe in the pre-contemplation or contemplation Mm -hmm. stage about, you know, obviously they're listening to the vegan family podcast. So they're thinking about what is this vegan thing? What if if I could go plant-based, but it's, it's good for others, but you know, Charlene can do it, but not me. What, What do you have to say? Them. Well, I'll, I'll even say as a vegetarian, for the longest time, I couldn't imagine what one would eat on a vegan diet. It seemed to me it would be all rabbit food and boring, right? And so it really um, took me some real change in my thinking to imagine that I could be really happy without eggs, cheese, as those flavor bombs. And um, so, so that I'd say there, there is hope. Um, And it's, um, I think it involves a mindset change and open to possibilities. And I I just think there's so many blogs and, you know, inspiring recipes on the web. there are all sorts of things to inspire you. So I, I really think getting inspired, um, maybe, and I know your new book is about flow in the kitchen. So I'd say before you do that, really get inspired by buying a couple of great recipe books. And you, you are know, a cookbook fan. I know that. <laughs> I am a cookbook fan. I get inspired with cookbooks and recipes, just with new ideas. So either on the web, um, or, you know, thumbing through books that will inspire you about what's possible and help you learn. Because I really do think it's helpful to learn a new way of cooking, and a new way of thinking about food that it's not, you know, meat, and a vegetable by the side, right, that it's a totally different way of approaching food and cooking. So, um, I'd say, you know, read, uh, look for great websites on on the web. And I think your blogs and your advice is great. Um, There are many more. The other thing, uh, if people can afford the time and the money, is if you can do a retreat, man, is that a great way to jump in. I will say that I went to um, one of the Esselstyn retreats with a friend who knew nothing 
about. Oh, really? Knew nothing about it. She just decided, you know, she'd come with me because I was talking this up. But she really didn't know the difference between vegan or whole food plant-based or anything. And we went to a retreat in Sedona. She came back. She'd drunk the Kool-Aid. She had tools. <laughs> she and she she knows how to cook, and she was able to really figure out how to do this. And all in, she is all in. And I would say, even me, I got more inspired and learned some things. Um, I have another friend. It's the fire, you know. It really, yeah. Gives yes. a bit of a boost, right? Absolutely. So. Absolutely. And, you know, since that retreat, I've been inspired to put, try and include greens in every meal I eat, breakfast, etc. So I, I think if you can do something like that, it's absolutely fabulous. Or, you know, there are online seven-day immersion programs. There are lots of opportunities, especially this time in, in the new year. And I'll say I have another friend who expressed an interest she's in her 60s expressed an interest in going plant-based because of a you know a health issue but sort of is in and out of it and there's a very she's on a very different trajectory than this friend who plunged right in and you know I guess my advice would be dive in just dive in, try it for a month. You can do anything for 30 days. So dive in, try it out, see how you feel. And you'll figure out ways to make it easier for yourself to do. I love it. I love this idea of a total immersion. Mm. Um, it makes you aware of possibilities. And I think Give, starting with giving yourself this idea that, well, if in 30 days, I don't want to keep going, I don't have to. Mm -hmm. but then maybe I think 30 days is also enough for people who have perhaps some chronic disease that they're struggling with to start seeing a difference. Could you think? Seven days will do it. We see real differences in cholesterol, A1C, markers for diabetes in seven days. You don't need 30 days, but 30 days is better to give yourself a real time to really adopt habits. So, you know, I mean, I think there are um, debates about whether it's best to start small or to dive in. Um, and I'd say, well, diving in for 30 days is sort of like starting small. It's not for the rest of your life. You can try right. it out, see what works. Right. And you can always maybe go back and forth after that a little bit. Absolutely. Then, um, right. Go yeah. back to all in right. over time after that. Yeah. Thank you so much, Charlene, for this inspiring conversation. I really appreciate your time and your beautiful ideas. And I look forward to cooking again with you, not yeah. too distantly in the future. <laughs> We've done it before and it was super fun. So let's do some batch cooking again. Uh, awesome. One of those weekends. I'll look thank forward you for being to there. Okay. Thank you very much.